Hey, good morning, exchange. I hope you are well this morning. Uh, we're actually, Ed was wrong, going to be in uh, John chapter 21. 21. We're going all the way to the end. I'm sorry. Did not give him a heads up on that. Uh, so today we're going to be looking at the uh, collective book of John before we dive deep. There's just too many good things about it uh, to, to dive down really deep, uh, really quick. And so I think it's going to serve us really well to look at the, the entirety of the book of John for a minute uh, before we dive uh, really far. And I'm really excited about this journey that we're going to be on together. It's going to be lengthy. We're going to have lots of uh, little pit stops along the way, some content along inside of the book of John that's going to help us uh, kind of mold and shape our minds, our hearts towards the person of Christ. And one of the things that I love about the book of John, the gospel of John, is that he doesn't leave room for any indifference for any apathy or a dismissed opinion about Jesus. I think with the claims that Jesus makes, uh, one has to leave this book and this journey with a verdict about what we believe Jesus is, who we believe he is. What do we believe about the claims that he makes? It's almost impossible to read through the book of John and think to yourself, I, I just don't know. We, we, we're forced to have an opinion, and I would say a verdict, about who Jesus is. Many of you are going to think I'm crazy when I say this, uh, but to much to my dismay, I've never been selected for jury duty. I, I, like, I want it so bad. For some reason, I just think just the objective nature of, of this task, uh, I would enjoy. Uh, and one of the things that I think is great about that is you don't, uh, you don't take into account sentencing uh, when you are delivering a verdict of guilty or innocent. Uh, if, if you would, if, if that would be up to the jury as well, there might be some subjective nature to it, or there might be even empathy or sympathy about what this verdict is going to mean. You might be hesitant to place a verdict because you're afraid of the consequence or the sentence. But really being on the jury, you just you look at the evidence and you say guilty or innocent. I kind of, um, I'm with um, Nate Bergowski. He did an act on this a little bit ago uh, when he said that the problem for him in that scenario would be when the judge asked the jury to strike something from the record, dismiss it altogether. You know, don't remember that when you're coming up with your verdict. And for me, uh, as soon as he said that, I would have said to myself, like, I, I would have never remembered that until now. You've locked it into my brain. Now that you've told me not to remember it, that's literally the only thing that I'll be able to remember for the entirety of, of the case. You're probably like me. They don't determine sentencing based on that. They determine the verdict. The evidence is shown it doesn't matter what I want it to be. It doesn't matter how I feel. It matters, innocent or guilty. What I love about the, the judicial system here also is that it's innocent until proven guilty, and it's guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, I know we don't get it right all the time, but what I love about this is it doesn't leave room. It doesn't say, do you kind of think he's guilty? Do you kind of think something happened? It's either, I, I believe with all of my heart and through the evidence that this is what happened, this is what was done, or I don't. It's either guilty or innocent. There's no room for indifference. And I think John pushes us in the same way uh, through his journey uh, of, of his gospel to look at Jesus and decide for ourselves, who do we think that he is? 
And for some of us in the room, that may be that, that for the first time ever at the end of this journey, or maybe through this journey, it may be a spot where we have to declare him as Lord. But for some of us during this journey, as we really investigate who Jesus is, it may be that some of the claims that he makes and some of the standards that he puts on our life, if we look at Jesus, we might have to alter certain things about our life to say, well, if Jesus is Lord, and if Jesus is asking this of me, then I must then obey. So I think John is going to force us all into a position where we have to release our verdict. Who do we say that Jesus is? So I want to talk about the authorship first, because I think this is really important. I think at first glance, we would all assume the author to be John, uh, which, which I believe is true, but I think we should press in a little bit further. Uh, the brother of James, the disciple of Jesus, the son of Zebedee. Uh, there's a small amount of debate whether or not this John is the John, the gospel of uh, the author of the gospel of John. There's an obscure letter written by a church father, Papias, who makes this ambiguous statement that distinguishes, it seems to distinguish uh, the disciple John from the elder John that rules in Jerusalem. Um, but it's really uh, kind of obscure and no other contemporary uh, even acknowledges that distinction. No other writings indicate it. And so I would say that throughout church history, uh, overwhelming, the overwhelming opinion and stance is that the author of this gospel is John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the disciple of Jesus. And one, the title that he would give himself in this letter and other places of scripture known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And this was the opinion of Irenaeus, also, uh, who was mentored by Polycarp, who was mentored by the disciple John. Uh, Polycarp never addressed it because he didn't need to. And I think at that time, it was universally accepted that John was the author. And why does this matter? Why does it matter that John, the disciple of Jesus, would write these words to us? Why is he called the disciple that Jesus loved? And if he wrote it, isn't that a little pretentious? Notice in John chapter 21, verse 20, there's some clues why we could ascertain that John, the disciple, uh, wrote this uh, book. And he says this, that Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who also leaned his back on his chest at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is it that is betraying you? So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Jesus had, had talked to Peter already, and, and he had warned Peter that one day he was going to suffer a martyr's death as Jesus would soon. And so Peter, being Peter, turns around and goes, well, what about John? And so he says this. He says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. And so he continues in verse 23. He says, therefore, this account went out among the brothers that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that he would not die, but only if I would want to remain, what is that to you? Verse 24, then this is the disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things. So the disciple that Jesus loved all throughout scripture, the author does not identify himself as John. He identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. The author identifies himself five times through this gospel in this way. And John Piper has some really insightful uh, thoughts on why this would be the case. I'm going to paraphrase some of those. 
We, we know that, uh, that as, as Peter and James and John were a very close trio, uh, very close with Jesus also, uh, after the resurrection, they go fishing uh, and they're um, looking at the shoreline. In verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And then finally in 2120, the disciple whom Jesus loved is seen following Peter and Jesus. So you have this repeated and really close relationship between whoever Jesus loved uh, and Peter. And we know that Peter and James and John were the trio. And we know that also John and James were the sons of Zebedee. Uh, John, uh, James, excuse me, was uh, martyred shortly after the resurrection. And so we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved is not Peter and it's not James. We can ascertain that it was most likely John. But why is it that he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loves? I think first it identifies the author as this eyewitness through the ministry of Jesus. He refers to himself in, in this way uh, as the Last Supper, the cross, as he receives Jesus' mother into his family. He receives, uh, refers to himself at the empty tomb, face to face contact with Jesus at the resurrection. He was there in this gospel as his eyewitness account that says, I was there and I, was, I had this intimate knowledge and relationship with Jesus. I think secondly, though, I, I think this is more importantly and, and more accurate. I think what John is saying here is my most important identity is not my name, but it's the fact that I'm loved by Jesus. The, the most important thing about me is, is not w- what my mother named me, what, I, what I've been called my entire life. The most important thing about me is being loved by Christ. He's simply saying, that this is the most important thing. I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved by Christ. And third, perhaps he was speaking like the Apostle Paul when Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, when Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, I think John's saying this, I identify myself as being loved by Christ because of this all-constraining, all-controlling reality in my life. And that's why I'm writing the gospel. This is why I minister. This is why I live. Christ's love controls me. It propels me. It fuels me. It's the most important thing about me. And that's why we know uh, of the rest of John's story, too. It's not just that he wrote these words, but we know that the love of Christ, Christ's relationship in his life, literally fueled him for the rest of his life. We see this incredible story in Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 2 through 20. Uh, The stage is that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's ascended. And now the disciples have gone out and they're teaching and preaching this. And so Peter and John uh, are preaching this in in town. And uh, we pick up here and it says that they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming Jesus' resurrection of the dead. And so they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. 
Annas and the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and others in the high priest family. So the same people who sentenced Jesus to death had captured Peter and John and they were questioning them as well. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. And they said, by what power or what name do you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we were being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, is it by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, by whom God has raised from the dead, and this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, which was become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If Peter and John wanted to quietly escape uh, prison, death, martyrdom at this point, these would be the exact words that you would not use. Notice this in, in verse 13. I love this passage. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I don't know if there's any greater words that could be spoken about a person. In fact, I don't know if there's any other words that could be written on a tombstone. Just an ordinary man just an ordinary man who was with Jesus. Just an ordinary husband that was changed by Jesus. Just an ordinary friend who was changed by Jesus. Just an ordinary man marked by Jesus. Verse 18, they called him in again. They didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with the power that was literally uh, coming off of them. And so they commanded them not to teach or speak. And they said, okay, we can't do anything to you, but don't do that again. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. Peter and John said this, listen, no matter what you threaten us with, you can't shut us up. You can't quiet us down. We can't stop talking about this because this is true. And it wasn't just that they kept talking about this when crowds were following them, when they were gaining popularity and success, and when uh, there was things that, that may, might elevate their status in the world. This, this dedication to preaching the gospel would go with Peter and John all the way to their deaths. Uh, church history, not even scripture, church history tells us about the attempted death of John later on. Tertullian writes this, listen to this, since moreover you are close upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even to our own hands the very authority of the apostles themselves. How happy is it that the church on which the apostles poured forth their doctrine along with their blood, and then in parentheses, he says, Peter, who endured a passion like the Lord's, he was crucified. Or like Paul, who wins a crown of life uh, of death, like John the Baptist, who was beheaded. Whereas the apostle John was first plunged, unhurt, into boiling oil, and thence remitted to an island exile. 
He later goes on to say that when they attempted to martyr John by placing him into a vat of burning oil, as they were marching him to this vat of burning oil, they gave him the chance to recant. And he says, I cannot. I cannot, because this is true. He later goes on to write, as they plunge him into this vat of burning oil, John continues to preach the gospel. And Tertullian writes, just about 70 years after this, he says, and in Tradition goes that he was literally unhurt. So if you're dominion, if you're trying to like literally end the, the words of Jesus coming out of anyone's mouth, you try to martyr someone who's preaching it, and they literally refuse to die and continue preaching, what do you do with them? You exile them to an island called Patmos, where he will then write Revelation. This is what the life and attempted life, death of John looked like, all the way preaching the gospel, all the way. No excuses. I believe that John had reached a verdict about Jesus. So much so that it literally controlled his life. It compelled every aspect of his life. So here's some questions for us today. Do you believe that Jesus is true enough to hand your life over to him? Do you believe that Jesus is true enough to hand your life over to him? I mean, I think for many of us in the room, many of us, maybe not all of us, many of us believe that Jesus is true enough to hand our eternity over to him. I don't want to go to hell and... This is the most compelling argument or this is the most compelling case that I've heard about the afterlife and eternity and it's either a hell or heaven. And so I'll give you this because I can't control any of it. But I'd like to hang on to my life. So do we believe that Jesus is true enough to hand your life over to him? The second question is this, is, is Jesus true enough in your life that other people would see him in you? As we go to work, as we interact with our family and our friends, would anybody, would anybody dare say, man, you know what? I don't know where they get it, but it's, I just see Jesus in them. I just see Jesus in the way that they talk. He should have been furious. He should have flew off the handle at this, this situation. And yet there was just this self-control. There was just this posture that looked different than anything I've ever seen. Must be Jesus. I wonder if Jesus is, is on us enough where other people see him in us. John was marked by his time with Jesus. from when he was walking with Jesus to his death. So the content of John is particularly interesting as well uh, because it has a very unique approach. It's different than every other gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic or seen-together gospels. These three gospels are, are very alike in many ways, they have a lot of overlapping information, history, background, context, parables from Jesus. But John is entirely different than the first three. 
The author doesn't feel compelled to restate information. It seems uh, like many of this information was well circulated at the time uh, throughout the church. And in this gospel of John, though uh, very familiar to other passages uh, and other uh, gospels, you won't find those stories in John anywhere. Here's some things that you won't see in the book of John. You won't find the genealogy of Jesus. You won't find an account of the Lord's birth, events of the Lord's childhood, the Lord's baptism, his temptation, the Sermon on the Mount. You won't uh, find an account of John the Baptist's doubts. You won't find any account of Jesus uh, casting out demons or healing lepers. You won't find any parables from Jesus. What's interesting is you actually won't find an account of the Lord's transfiguration either. John was the only one of the disciples who wrote a gospel who was present at the transfiguration. And yet, you won't find that story in here. You know why I believe? It's because he says it was already written. You already have the story. I have nothing else to add. The selection of sending out the, and sending out of the twelve. You won't have any prophetic addresses from Jesus, no pronouncement of woes against religious leaders, the institution of the Lord's Supper, an account of the Lord's agony in in Gethsemane. Uh, You won't find the giving of the Great Commission. Uh, You won't find an account of the Lord's ascension. None of that in the book of John. But you will find other things that aren't found anywhere else. You'll find him identified as creator in John chapter 1. As Jesus, the only begotten Son, in John chapter 1 and 3. Jesus as the promised Lamb of God. You'll find Jesus revealing himself as the great I Am. You'll see him turning the water into wine in John chapter 2. You'll you'll hear his conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You'll find his conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and the women uh, caught in adultery in John chapter 8, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, the washing of his disciples' feet in 13, the upper room discourse in John uh, 14 through 17, the teaching and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming in John chapter 14 through 16, and the high priestly prayer, what Jesus would pray over us and all of his disciples in John chapter 17. Over 90%, 90% of the gospel of John is unique to the gospel of John. It's not found in any of the other gospels. So there isn't much narrative or stories or surrounding what's happening with historical context. Well, instead, this book is filled with important dialogue, conversations, answers, and questions formed by Jesus. And in these dialogues, the, the, the author provides for us three lists of sevens. This is really fascinating. John gives us three lists of sevens uh, in his gospel. Uh, He gives us seven signs, seven witnesses, and seven declarations or claims of Jesus. First, he gives us seven public signs of Jesus' miracle. And he actually says many times, this is the first sign that Jesus gave. And so we find these all throughout Scripture, uh, but also specifically in the book of John. Uh, The turning of water into wine, the healing the official son from a distance, the healing of an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee, the walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, the healing in the blind man in Jerusalem, and raising Lazarus 
from the dead. John says that these were signs that people who looked on had to reach a verdict on. They weren't private. They weren't stories where Jesus would come back into the crowd and say, hey guys, you should have seen what I did. Back in the early morning hours with the Father, he, he allowed me to do these things, to say these things, to hear these things. No, none of these were, were private miracles. They were public miracles on display so that all those who would see and hear had to reach a verdict. They had to say what I believe about Jesus. And, and then we see these seven I am statements from Jesus himself. He says that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He would go on to finish that. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then he would say, I am the true vine. Seven seemingly basic analogies for us, but very declarative statements and definitive statements that Jesus is making about himself and his identity and his deity and his equality with the Father. Very dangerous and condemning statements if you're not who you say that you are. And out of that, we're given seven witnesses who then declare Jesus as Lord. John the Baptist in John chapter 1, he says this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 49, then Nathaniel cried, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and you are the King of Israel. A very definitive statement. This is who you are. Peter in John chapter 6. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Martha, John chapter 11. She says, yes, Lord. She says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Thomas, John chapter 20. After he doubted, after he had seen and touched, he says, my Lord and my God. John, the author. John chapter 20, that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God. And then Jesus, who very plainly and very clearly states who he is. And this is important. He says this in John chapter 8, Verily I say unto you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Later on in John chapter 10, he says, uh, What about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son. We've talked about this many times before. Anybody can make a claim about someone else, and it, and it doesn't necessarily uh, put them on the hook. I, I can say about someone else, I really think that they're the best guitar player ever, and that's just your opinion. But when someone makes a claim about themselves, you must then prove it. You must then back it up. You must then have evidence to produce that what you have said about yourself is true. It's no longer subjective. It is your identity and what you are saying is true. 
And so by Jesus identifying himself as the Messiah, the Son of God, this forces us to say Jesus can then no longer be a kind man if he's lying. At this point, when Jesus makes this claim about himself, he can no longer just be a good teacher. It's not possible anymore. C.S. Lewis would famously say that, that because of these claims, Jesus must be a liar, a lunatic who thinks this is true, but is not, or he's God. But one of these three has to be true. I think that one of the most compelling things in this letter for us and what we decide is John's clear purpose statement and the one we must answer as we're reading and going through this book. John clearly says to us in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, why he has written this. He says this, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that this would be what we believe. And that belief, he says, and that by believing you would have life in his name. That this belief would not be uh, something that we would place on a shelf at any moment, but this belief would literally control, propel, and fuel our lives. That our life must be different because of this belief. John is so convinced that when we believe the claims, the promises, and the life of Jesus, it demands a verdict that changes our lives forever. I fear, I fear that Jesus' words in, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he, he tells his disciples that many will come to me in that day. And they say, Lord, Lord. And he repeats these words. And he says, well, I never knew you. You kind of had this like thing. You went to church. You, you made these claims. But that life-changing belief, it, 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 you never had it. It was never there. I never had a relationship with you because when you place a verdict on me, it demands a relationship. John says, this is written so that we would believe and know and live. And it comes through the belief in who Jesus says that he is, what he has said he has come to do, and what he said he requires from all of us. And all of this is written from John, who watched Jesus, who saw Jesus, who was loved by Jesus. See, all religions claim some sort of revelation. Buddhism depends on this profound insight gained by the Buddha during his moment of enlightenment when meditating under a tree. Hinduism looks at Vedas who passed on uh, to the first man at the dawn of time. Islam says that an angel Gabriel dictated to the prophet Muhammad the very words of God. But Christianity claims something entirely different. a series of events about the life of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, all of which are said to be done in public, are the basis 
for what we believe and who we believe Jesus to be. It's as if Christianity places itself on the, its neck on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wishes to come and take a swing to do so. For example, if, if uh, you know, my late great-great-great-grandfather if I stood up here today and said, guys, you'll never believe what happened last night. My great-great-grandfather who died in 1927. He showed up last night, New York City, Times Square, in the middle of everything, traffic, all the things. Stopped traffic, lights shone down on him, and he started to talk about the afterlife and eternity. He started to talk about what heaven is like. Guys, go look and see. The footage is there. There's an easy thing to do. First, you would probably call me crazy. You hadn't heard about it. You haven't read about it. You'd seen no videos about it. But the very easy thing to do is just to grab your phone and say, did this happen or not? Did you know that there's not, there's not any credible historians that would deny the life of Jesus? It, it's very difficult to find anyone who's a credible scholar that would literally deny the life of Jesus. It's even very difficult to find a credible scholar that would deny the, the conspiracy of Christ's resurrection or body moved somewhere else. See, Jesus is, is it's a very uh, difficult person to get around. You, you kind of can't. Especially with his claims that he says, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. We must... We must decide what are we going to do with Jesus. Not just for our eternity, but for our life. So the question is for us today. Are you willing? Are you willing to place a verdict on Jesus that may change your life? Are you willing to place a verdict on Jesus that may demand and require you to follow him in a way that you never dreamed, maybe in uncomfortable ways? Are you willing to place a verdict on Jesus? The Apostle Paul writes for us a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. He says this, For this reason I bow on my knees before the Father, from whom uh, every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. And here's the prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that you would be filled up with all the fullness of God now to whom who is able to do far more abundantly than beyond what we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever Amen. He says, I want you to know Jesus in a way that you never thought you could know Jesus. So the question is, 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 is do you want that? 
Do you want it? I would invite you now. I would invite you now. Before we place a sentence, what that means, before we place any kind of a sentence on or consequences on what that might mean, would you at least say this? Jesus, would you make me willing to know you in ways that I don't know you? Would you at least make me open to know the truth about you? Are you brave enough? Are you are you courageous enough to even pray that prayer? Jesus, help me know you in ways I don't know you. Help me know the truth about you, no matter what that means. Would you pray that prayer with me? Lord, I know that as we begin this journey with these words written by one who knows you very well, who has loved you very well, and has been loved by you, You know that it, it demands that, that we state and belief of who you are. So God, before we're, we allow ourselves to be scared or timid or worried about the sentence of that, what it might mean for our lives, what it might require for our lives, would you... Would you give us the courage to, to approach you with this open mind and this open heart, this willingness and this wantingness to know you deeper, better, and more true than we ever have before? Lord, I pray that at the end of our series, throughout our series, Lord, you would help our hearts and our minds be woken up to you. Lord, I pray that you would do great and mighty things in our heart and in our mind. Lord, as we pray as a church, would you change us, would you shape us, would you make us more like you? As you continue to pray every week, we, uh, we make this available. And maybe today, as we went through this overview on the book of John, you realize, man, I, I really, I need to know who Jesus is. If that's you, one of our prayer partners in the back would love to show you who Jesus is. We'd love to just take a few minutes and show you how to know Jesus. Maybe you came in today with something else on your mind, heavy on your heart, that you desperately need prayer for. We would invite you to walk back to the back. Our prayer partners will take you behind the curtain. They'll just, they'll just pray with you and pray for you. Maybe today you say, you know what, I... I'm a little bit scared of what it looks like to, to know Jesus. I've got some reservations. And I, I'm just praying that the Lord will give me courage. Whatever it is, you're not alone. We would love to pray with you and for you. We've got prayer partners in the back ready and waiting, willing, and we would love to do that with you.